You've likely heard the term mindfulness, but what is it really? What's the benefit of it to leaders? And how do you actually become more mindful? The starting point for answers to all those questions today. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 365. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. Certainly, you've heard the term mindfulness. You've probably even heard it a bit mentioned on this show in the last year or two. It is one of those words that is becoming very popular, maybe even a buzzword a bit. It is extraordinarily helpful to leaders who have developed a practice of mindfulness, and yet it is also one of those terms that is sometimes hard to get our minds around and to really uh, recognize how we can benefit from a practice of mindfulness. I am so glad to be able to welcome today's guest who is going to help us to unpack this word a bit, to understand it, to understand what are some of the things out there that are maybe not true about mindfulness, and most importantly, how we can really benefit from the practice of mindfulness. Uh, My guest today is Michelle Maldonado. She is the founder and CEO of Lucencia, a human potential and business strategy firm dedicated to developing leaders and organizations with positive impact in the world. Michelle is a faculty member and meta-coach for Daniel Goleman's inaugural Emotional Intelligence Coaching Certification Program, which is how I got introduced to her originally. She was named Top Corporate Leader by HR.com's Leadership Essentials and also Woman of the Year by the National Association of Professional Women. Her work has been featured by the Human Capital Institute, the Mindful Leadership Summit, Leadership Excellence, and Chief Learning Officer. And she's also a contributor to the Huffington Post. Michelle, I'm so glad to uh, welcome you for this conversation. Well, thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. Well, I mentioned in the introduction here that mindfulness is one of these words that has become a bit of a buzzword, I think. <laughs> and and that's both good and bad, right? It's good because there's recognition of mindfulness and the importance of mindfulness, but it's also one of those words that I think a lot of us don't really understand or appreciate. I know I don't. And so I'm wondering if maybe we could start just by tackling the question of what is mindfulness? And that is a fantastic place to start because that's exactly right. If you were to do a search on the internet to define what mindfulness is, you would have a number of definitions pop up. And so it creates a lot of confusion and there isn't consistency around what our understanding of it is. So I want to offer a kind of a framework that includes the elements of what it means to be mindful. Mm. The first thing I want to say, though, is that we have to be careful when we talk about mindfulness and then we talk about things we think are part of mindfulness, but may actually be a tool or an element to uh, cultivate mindfulness. So let's begin with an overarching definition and a visual. If you think about mindfulness as kind of an umbrella or a toolkit that houses lots of things to help cultivate our ability to be fully present in the moment. You know, John Kabat-Zinn has an amazing, beautiful definition for mindfulness that 
that he describes as paying attention in a particular way on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally. And what's, those are really interesting components that were expanded upon more recently by the UK Mindful Nation report. And in England, they're doing a lot of research around how can mindfulness help political organizations and governments, uh, healthcare, education. And, and they just, they take John Kabat-Zinn's definition and they expand upon it to include a number of additional components and awarenesses. And so this is the definition I like to rely on because it is much more expansive. Under this nation report, they describe mindfulness as paying attention to what's happening in the present moment, in the body, in the mind, and the external environment with an attitude of curiosity and kindness. Mm. You think about that, what it allows for us to do is to be able to be in a place of better clarity and awareness with what's happening around us and not having a lens of judgment or criticism or drawing a conclusion before we have all the facts. And so it, set, it sets a very fertile foundation for that to happen. So whether it's conversations, uh, interactions, decision-making, holding it from a place of what's happening, with your thoughts, your body, and around you. So those elements are really important when you're thinking about what is mindfulness and what does it mean to be fully present? We had Ed Shine on the show recently talking about humble leadership, and I'm struck by how what you just described so much fits into what he's described as well as the importance of the practice of humility and curiosity. And I'm hearing that in the elements of mindfulness too. And and I'm also hearing a broader definition than I think I was thinking of mindfulness. I know when you and I first talked, I I think in my mind, I was equating mindfulness and meditation as very similar things. And I, I've certainly heard from others who have started a meditation practice with the intention of becoming more mindful and in, and, and in some ways equating those terms. And, and you've helped coach me a bit on the fact that those aren't necessarily the same things. Absolutely. But mindfulness meditation is one of the most powerful practices to help cultivate your ability to be fully present in the moment, to be mindful, to be a mindful leader, uh, team leader, colleague, coworker, parent. Uh, I always say the not so secret secret about this work is that it actually infuses every part of your life and not just the four corners of your office. Mm. If, if meditation is a part of that, and as you mentioned, it's a powerful tool, it is one element of mindfulness. It's a, it's a tool toward mindfulness versus mindfulness in and of itself, if I'm hearing you right. Yes. Yeah, so meditation can help cultivate your capacity to be mindful, as well as a lot of other things. Imagine if we sort of give a real life practical example of how mindfulness can show up in the leadership uh, context is imagine, and I always say that, you know, there are certain people in our lives that know how to push those invisible buttons. <laughs> we mm, have indeed. They keep pushing my buttons. Well, imagine being in a work meeting, uh, it could be a one-on-one, it could be with a direct report or your boss, and you're feeling a little triggered. Now, part of being mindful if you think about the components of it, is being aware of what's happening, what's going on in your body, right? When we get upset, we may get tenseness in the chest or shoulders or head. We may be having different thoughts. We can see what's happening outside of us. What are people saying? And if awareness is half the battle, right? Being aware, but then the next step 
from that awareness derived from mindfulness is then your sort of skillful response and management of yourself. So in a difficult conversation, really paying attention to how are you feeling? What are you thinking? And how is that impacting your interaction with the person before you? And I would imagine that for those of us who haven't done that before or have been able to have that awareness and then to translate it in the moment to how we behave and show up, that that's a challenge to do. Um, so I'm, I'm curious as you, when you work with people, Michelle, how do you first of all coach people on really having that awareness? And then what's the next step beyond that as far as the behavior change? There are lots of frameworks. And one of the things I think is a natural pairing is mindfulness and the emotional intelligence competencies. And I know you spoke with uh, Dan Goleman and about his amazing work that he's done for decades in this space. In his early years, there were about four or five domains that really represented the larger categories of buckets or skill sets. And mindfulness. So if you think about the emotional intelligence domain of self-awareness, self-awareness is so critically important. It's the first and foundational emotional intelligence domain upon which all the others rest. But to develop self-awareness, you can use mindfulness. So it can be meditation. Mindfulness is also sort of mental focus training. So how do I train the mind to be able to sort of work through different processes and different experiences. And so to cultivate self-awareness, you practice mindfulness, being fully present. In that journey, what you're discovering is you. You are doing your own inner work and understanding what's important to you, what your values are, uh, what your alignment um, is with your work, your, your feelings, your emotions, all those things that kind of inform how you show up. And then the next step to answer your question is then taking that awareness and figuring out how do I manage everything that's showing up in the moment? And in the beginning, it seems like, holy cow, it's like, it's like a waterfall, a watershed. How could I possibly, in a split second or two, manage all of that? But the reality is we do it all the time. We're just not as intentional about it. And so mindfulness helps us be intentional helps us to be intentional about how we choose to respond skillfully versus react. And one of the ways that's really a good illustration about that is, is this quote by Stephen Covey that kind of summarizes the work of um, Viktor Frankl. And they, he talks about the space between stimulus and response. And so something happens, you're triggered, then there's a space, and then you, re, you react or you skillfully respond. And what determines that is how what you do with that space in between trigger and response. So are you taking a breath? Are you properly in, uh, self-assessing? Uh, what is it you're doing to maximize that space to enable your capacity to choicefully respond? And so looking at that mindfulness, building self-awareness, being able to cultivate your ability to be self-managed, and then responding choicefully. You mentioned a moment ago that we already do it all the time. It's now a matter of being more intentional about it. Just so I can get my head around it, what is it that we do all the time? And what's the distinction between what we're already doing and the intentional nature of it? That's the part I'm, I'm curious, yeah. like, how does, that, how does that change? Yeah. 
So imagine you're driving home from work or for those of us who take the metro or the train, you know, for commuting purposes. And if you're in your car, all of a sudden, wow, you're home. You don't remember passing the gas station or the grocery store or the, the four metro stops before your stop because you've been on autopilot. Right. And so there's, there is a different quality of experience when you're paying attention to what's happening. So take the same commute time and you're driving and you're fully present with paying attention to the road. You're not on autopilot. You're seeing the mountains. You're seeing, you're feeling the sunshine or you're in the train and you're feeling sort of the movement of the train. You're aware of each stop. The nature and quality of the experience is very different. The same thing happens when you interact with people. Another example could be you're in a meeting with someone and I think we can all <laughs> think of a time where this has happened to us. And the person before us is either on their phone, texting away, uh, or they're still emailing. And they're like, uh-huh, yeah, mm-hmm. And they're not really keeping eye contact. And they're just kind of minimally giving you their attention. Now, take that same experience and flip it around to someone who either pulled down their laptop uh, cover or turned it off and put their phone down and made eye contact with you, allowed you to finish your sentences, allowed you to speak. So that's a different quality of experience and attention that is intentional. And what it does in that particular experience is allows the receiver to feel heard, valued, and seen. And that's very different when you're in there and people are feeling so busy that they don't time to give you the full attention because they're not fully present in the moment. I'm really struck by that example of driving home or being on the metro of, like you said earlier, this starts with self-awareness. It starts with us first uh, before we are going to influence change in others. And so I think if I'm hearing you, the you know just, just as a practice, um, as a starting point, of noticing those things versus on being on autopilot of stopping and being very conscious of what's happening in the moment. And that if we do that, we start to get our brains used to noticing that and being very present in the moment that then helps us to be the kind of person that when we're in those tough situations and when we are trying to think of how do we respond intentionally in the moment, that we are training our brains to do a better job at that. Absolutely. But the other thing that this does is it really helps to elevate your clarity. I always, you know, I'm totally dating myself right now, but back in the 80s, there was this short-lived television series called The Sentinel. And it was a gentleman who came from the military, but Actually, genetically, he came from a long line of people who were people who protected villages and they had extra senses of sight, hearing, smell. So I liken sort of being mindful and cultivating that skill set is almost like a superpower. You start to, to view things with better clarity. And as a result, you start to see things that other people don't notice. Mm. So that means if you're in a business or a team meeting and you're working on a project, you're trying to come up with a solution for a client or customers and everybody else is kind of frantic around you and they're, maybe they're frustrated because they're not making progress and you take a breath and all of a sudden the clouds kind of hurt a little bit and you start to see a, a sliver of something 
that leads to a solution that no one else picked up on. I've had this experience myself and have talked with many other people who once they sort of cultivate that practice and, and are consistent to the point that it becomes a sustainable habit, that they start to see things differently and it impacts your level of performance. I noticed one of the other terms that has come up recently is this term unconscious bias. And I have a feeling there's a connection here as well too. What's the significance of that for leaders? Yes, this one is so powerful. And we see a lot of this throughout history from ancient times to modern times, right? And so like mindfulness, there are lots of different definitions for unconscious bias, but there is one um, out of UC San Francisco that I really appreciate that that defines unconscious bias as social stereotypes about certain groups of people that we, we form outside of our own conscious awareness. We all have unconscious beliefs about various social and identity groups. And these biases stem from our tendency to want to organize social worlds by categorizing. This is a friend. This is a foe. This is good. This is bad. And so we can't beat ourselves up that we have bias, you know, conscious or unconscious. But what we do need to do is to sort of allow ourselves the time and space to identify what they are, to positively manage them, and to recognize the impact that they have, not just on our own behavior and decision making, but on their their impact on those around us. So if you take the example that we just heard from the Iowa gambling study, Imagine that, that as they started reaching for the red cards, their behavior started to change and they began to reach for the blue cards. Now, unconscious bias is like that. Something happens. You see a person that maybe is in a group and it could be, you know, something that could be, I like to use this example. There's always one or two groups in an organization that people want to tend, tend to kind of unload on or blame for things that go wrong. And the thing that I have found that people always want to blame IT, <laughs> IT was <laughs> compassion for, <laughs> and they also always want to blame HR. Those two departments get a lot of blame. So let's just say that you're in the workplace and, and something happens and you need help from IT, but then you're like, oh, IT. Or, and so you start to label, you have a bias about them. And you're not even aware that you're doing everything you can to avoid an interaction or encounter with the IT department or insert blank department. But this also comes to play in how we hire people. So if you are a leader of a team or a manager or an HR talent acquisition professional, how you bring people in the door is often influenced by unconscious bias. We tend to look at people as either like us or not like us. There is a great uh, study that was done by Dr. David Eagleman. He is um, out of uh, Stanford University, and you and anybody can go and do a um, a search on the internet for his in group versus out group kind of research study. and And what he said was that a single word label can actually impact or influence how we perceive someone. So, in this particular study, they use religious labels, and what they found was the parts of our brain that are sort of connected to the expression of empathy were not as fully triggered when we saw somebody uh, experience pain that wasn't in our in-group. 
Now, our in-group could be anything. It could be our sports team, our department at work. Um, it could be our family. It could be anything. And, and, and it could be nothing. It could be atheists. It doesn't have to be a religious group. It doesn't matter. And, and, I, and people say, no, that's impossible. How could we do that? And I give this, ex- this example that is so very relatable. There are a lot of sports fanatics, I'm sure, uh, as part of your listening base. They love a particular football team or baseball team. And how many times has the quarterback or somebody gotten injured of the other team? And you're like, yes, <laughs> mm-hmm. we have to win now. And so it's very natural for us to do that. So we have to look at ways to close the gap between in-group versus out-group. And there are a couple of ways to do that. I'm really struck by how many times on the show when we're talking about behavior change, just making one of those small shifts in our behavior, but doing it consistently can then lead to uh, really changes in so many other areas, but it is really having that courage to start small and to start making that change. And that's one of the things I'm, I'm curious about too, Michelle, is I suspect that most of our listening audience has heard the term mindfulness. And unlike maybe 10 years ago, I think most people recognize that there's some benefit to uh, being more mindful. When you run into someone who, who has that orientation of like, yes, I'd, I'd like to try this, Where's the first place you suggest that people start? I often talk about two things, sort of the, you know, just sort of frame it out, talking about being intentional about the quality of their presence. And that's important because when people, people generally want to do good, right? We want to be of service. We want to, to meet our goals. We want to bring people with us and, you know, at our best, those, those are sort of foundational desires for each of us. And so we can first get people to understand that mindfulness is a way of being. People often will start out with me saying, yeah, I don't, I don't have enough time to put anything else on my plate. <laughs> you know, in fact, one time I was working with the executive team and we were waiting for the CFO to show up. And finally she comes running in. She's very kind of rushed and hurried and kind of out of source. And she looked at me and she goes, oh, thank God you're here. You need to teach me how to be mindless. And then kind of nudged her. She's like, it's mindful. She says, no, no, my mind is already full. I need to be less in the mind. Oh, interesting. So you have to kind of think about what's the quality of my presence. And then the first and easiest thing to do is get people to just focus on their breath. For people who, who have never tried it before, a lot of times it's just very easy to start with counting the breath or following the breath as it enters your nostrils down your throat, kind of fills your chest and abdomen, and just following the cycle of the breath for a few repetitions. And then over time, being able to extend the time that you do that. And sometimes it's hard for people to do it on their own. So they might need a guided meditation. And I know, you know, many of your your listeners are familiar with some of the apps that are out there, but those are also um, good places to start. And then if they want something more formalized, you know, there are certainly a number of formalized sort of training or classes, not necessarily training that you have to go out and teach others, but for yourself. Well, one of the gifts that you have given us is 
a really great library of some of the best resources out there. You've sent to me a number of books and resources. So I'm going to be putting those all in the show notes. I'll also include those in the weekly guide for those of you who received those on Wednesday. So be watching for that. And um, I-, I thought we'd mention a few of them here because I wasn't aware of some of these resources. And I know, Michelle, you, of course, are affiliated with Daniel Goleman's Emotional Intelligence Coaching Certification. He talked about it when he was on the show a few months ago. That's a great option for coaches out there. And in addition to that, one resource I wasn't aware of, which really looks fascinating, is the organization Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute. Tell us more about that. What What is that about? Yes. Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute, the acronym is silly. And it actually is pronounced that way intentionally. You know, people need to laugh more. We need to not be taking ourselves so seriously. So Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute was co-founded by three folks, a primary one out of Google, one of the engineers. And it was really uh, originated to teach some of this to programmers who, who needed to develop more people skills, if you will. And over time, it became very clear that this was something bigger And after a while, what was really most remarkable is that Google allowed a spinoff of a separate nonprofit organization to bring this work into the world to help cultivate the conditions for peace by uh, cultivating inner peace. And the way that that transpired was pretty remarkable. Anybody that is familiar with Google and how it kind of works, there is no other example in its history where it is allowed something to spin off from itself, maintain its own intellectual property, even though it was originated with the company so that it could uh, serve a greater good. And as part of the program, what is really also remarkable is that it brings together the mindfulness, emotional intelligence based on contemporary neuroscience for effective, resilient, positive, and sustainable leadership. So there is a connection to all three of those elements that helps support and sustain us in how we show up as leaders and how we make a difference in our organizations, our communities, and the world. I was looking on their website, and it's really fascinating. And I believe you're on you're on their faculty. Am I remembering that correctly? Yes. Yes, I'm one of yeah. their team. Yeah, it's really mm-hmm. fascinating. I mean, it, it looks like a Google site because it originated with Google. And if I read it right, like you can you can go to events uh, around the world, and they're regularly teaching these practices. And so, for those who are really looking to dive into this headfirst, it, it sounds like that would be a really good starting point. Absolutely. You know, I travel the world. Uh, teaching the programs. And so they have what are called public programs that you can look to see if there's something in your city or a nearby city or in your country, uh, because it is all over the world. And there's also opportunity to bring it in-house so that you can work with their leadership team or their middle managers. And so there are a number of ways to help bring this in, to weave it into the fabric of organizations and leadership styles and presence. Well, this is just fabulous uh, of all these resources, Michelle. You know, you and you've just aligned with some people who are just been leaders in this space for so many years. Daniel Goldman, of course. Uh, I know you're now doing work with Bill George on authentic leadership as well. One of our past guests, uh, former CEO of Medtronic, and of course, uh, for those who are 
really wanting to maybe learn a little bit more about Michelle's work, um, I'm going to include a link in the notes to uh, your own firm, Michelle Lucencia, so folks can uh, really find some additional resources there. And this has just been so helpful to me. So thank you so much. And I, I am, uh, before I let you go, I, I would like to ask you about failure. Um, as you know, I often uh, I believe that failure is a part of the learning process, and I often ask people when they when they're on the show, "What's a place where you have failed uh, in the past, and what have you learned from it?" Yeah, I I love that question, and uh, <laughs> as I've often been quoted to say, is I've got so many to choose from. So <laughs> one of the ones I wanted to share was something that really can affect us at any time in our professional leadership journey. And one of them was younger in my career where I felt I was working in the technology space and I had been tasked with restructuring a very complex deal. I had just moved from being the lawyer to being on the business side. So I transitioned to business development. And my very first deal was to restructure a deal that I had helped negotiate when I was in my legal capacity. And I felt very much like I was having imposter syndrome, like, oh, my goodness, I don't know if I I know enough to now be on the business side. I don't know if if, if they're going to find out I'm not as smart as they think I am. I was often the only woman in these rooms, uh, certainly more than not the only person of color. And it left me feeling a little insecure about my gifts, my intellect, and my abilities because I was surrounded by such spectacularly gifted and talented professionals mm-hmm. that it made me think that maybe I didn't measure up. And a lot of times we do that when we come into new situations that goes beyond whether it's just, oh, nervous jitters in the beginning. And so how that played out with this particular project was I had a lot of great ideas in my mind. I actually knew how we needed to restructure the deal and what we needed to do, but I couldn't find the words. I was sort of uh, self-sabotaging in my silence um, because I was stuck in fear and insecurity. And so every time I tried to speak, it didn't come out correctly. And so I felt that I was generating a perception that I wasn't competent, that I wasn't an equal team player, which was a self-fulfilling prophecy that felt, you know, that fed into my insecurity. And so ultimately what happened was we did restructure the deal. And everything that I was trying to convey, someone else in the room conveyed more effectively and more more articulately and was credited for saving the deal. And I was looked at, well, she kind of needs to to learn a little bit more, which wasn't the case. It was a confidence and sort of ability to appreciate and find my voice. And I share this one because... Uh, I've spoken with so many people, whether they're millennials or they're people who are more seasoned but are moving into completely different industries or facets of their life. And the thing that I learned that is so incredibly powerful for us to remember is understanding the power of the inner critic, the power and importance of finding your voice, and the power of self-confidence so that you can create a solid foundation for how you show up with purpose and impact in your work. And what a wonderful path you've given us today, Michelle, on doing exactly that, because it is so true that perception becomes reality, right? So how we show up and being more mindful is 
one of the paths toward being able to uh, be better at that ourselves. So thank you so much for this. I have a feeling this is not going to be our last conversation on this topic on the show. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm anxious to see what folks do with the steps you've recommended for us today. Great. Well, it's been such a pleasure. I thank you for inviting me to have a conversation with you today. I am including in the show notes and this week's leadership guide coming on Wednesday, the links Michelle has shared with me for books and articles for those of you who want to dive deeper on mindfulness. So if that is a topic uh, and to, or today's conversation has really generated some thinking on this for you, I'd encourage you to check those out and or share them with someone you know that may be thinking about this as well and would benefit from it. And in addition, I'd recommend you hop into our podcast library at coachingforleaders.com slash podcast and check out some of the related conversations to today's episode. One of those episodes I would recommend is episode 344, Have Conversations That Matter. That was earlier this year. Celeste Headley was my guest. She is a host with NPR, has conversations with all all kinds of people all the time that thousands of people listen to. And she also has an incredibly popular TED Talk on the topic of having better conversations. I have received so many emails and notes about that episode of being helpful to people in their own conversations. So again, episode 344 is one to check out in relation to today's chat. Uh, as we talked about with Michelle, a part of being mindful is being able to show up and be present for conversations. So that uh, will also help you in that path. Also recommended is episode 353, Enhance Your Self-Awareness. My guest on that episode was Daniel Goleman, the person who first coined the term emotional intelligence. Uh, Michelle, as we mentioned, is on his faculty for his coaching certification program. And Daniel in that episode talked about uh, one of the key foundations for emotional intelligence, self-awareness. That's very much a part of mindfulness, a great compliment to today's conversation. Again, that's episode 353. Also recommended episode 363, The Path of Humble Leadership. Edgar Schein and Peter Schein were my guests on that episode. They were talking about their newly released book, Humble Leadership, and had talked extensively about humility and curiosity that came up in today's conversation as well. So you're seeing a lot of this thinking coming together in alignment of utilizing these skills and these values in order to lead effectively. By the way, when that episode aired, the book was not yet released, Humble Leadership. Edgar and Peter have since released the book. It is now out. So if you were looking for it and weren't able to get it a couple of weeks ago, check it out again. That's episode 363. You can access all of those past episodes that are searchable by topic by going to coachingforleaders.com slash podcast. And if you haven't yet set up your free membership, you'll want to do so so you can access all the past episodes searchable by topic and the entire library. In addition, there's a ton more resources on there, including getting access to my weekly leadership guide that comes in your email box on Wednesdays my free audio course, uh, all of the online library and articles and podcasts that I've databased over the last several years, uh, including in the in the weekly leadership guides, the member cast, so much more. And included especially is the free audio course, 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead. If you have just started listening recently to the show, that is a wonderful starting point for 10 minutes a day for 10 days to help you to get the most immediate practical actions to become a better leader. You can access all of that just by going to the main page over at coachingforleaders.com and you can set up your free membership right there. 
Thank you this week to Serve Lead Inspire. What a great, what a great username for the kind review you left on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much. Thank you to all of you in the last few weeks who've also left ratings on the iTunes store or Apple Podcast. Uh, I appreciate all of those. If you'd like to leave a review as well, just go to coachingforleaders.com slash Apple if you're on the Apple uh, platform. Uh, By the way, Android now has a native app from Google for podcast listeners. You can get to it if you're not already using it on your Android device just by going to coachingforleaders.com slash Android. How about that? And if you're an Overcast user and this episode was helpful, uh, hit the star button on the app to recommend it to others. Thanks in advance if you do any of those. Have a great week, and I look forward to seeing you back again next Monday. Take care.